The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. My name is Dion Gribben and this is episode 16, Retail Therapy. Thank you for tuning in again this week. If you enjoy the show, I'd love you to give it a rating on your preferred podcast app. I don't think they all allow ratings, but if you have the ability to give it a rating, please do leave it a review as well if you've got the time. That would be much appreciated. And as I always kind of say on my podcasts, probably the best compliment I could ever receive is word of mouth. So if you know someone that might enjoy this type of podcast, please let them know because that's how, well, at least that's how I believe that good things spread when you are told about it by your friends and family. So yeah, let someone know. But we're going to jump into it this week and talk about the markets. We've got a few different things to talk about, but as the title suggests, we're going to talk a little bit about the Australian retail sector. Specifically, there was so much news about some of the ASX-listed retail stocks and at least for me, some surprising stuff as well. So let's jump into that. But first, let's talk about what the major markets did this week. Well, the ASX 200 did suffer a down week. It was down 2.5%. It was not much better in the US. In fact, it was probably a little bit worse, but the S&P 500 was down 4.7%. The NASDAQ, not as bad, but it was down 2.3%. It's the worst worst week for the US markets since about mid-March. And the week kind of the week actually did kick off quite well. It seemed like it was going to be another week of uh, the sort of gains and rising that we've seen a little bit as of late. But by Thursday, that kind of thinking was definitely out the door and and it was fading out of reality. It kind of felt a little bit eerie because it was only last week's episode that we're talking about how the valuation uh, using the forward PE ratio as, as one metric, which we talked about last episode, if you looked at that metric on US markets, you could see that it was kind of showing that it was as expensive as it well, almost it's ever been, really. And it's probably not really reasonably priced at all. And then suddenly we've had quite a big and significant pullback this week. I know a lot of people that I've spoken to who are investors or work in the industry, there seems to be a feeling of that the US markets might be a little bit more riskier right now for someone in Australia to invest in versus our own domestic markets. At least we seem to be, hopefully, at least as it's come along so far, coming out of this a little bit better than some of the ways that the US is handling it. And we'll talk about that in just a second. The US Central Bank or the the Fed, they had some grim warnings in the middle of the week that the US economy could be weak for several years and they think that by the time the election rolls around in November, that unemployment over there will still be around 10%. And so, yeah, there was a lot of commentary from outlets that basically said that the market was spooked by these words from Jerome Powell, head of the Fed, and basically, you know, saying that this is not going to bounce back immediately and it's going to take a while to recover, which was kind of weird because I'm like, I don't know why you need Jerome Powell to tell you that because, I don't know, it seems kind of obvious that it's going to take a little bit of time to, to recover. It could could be several years before that kind of stuff. Uh, the U.S. market, that is, or the U.S. economic economic growth, is is back to where it back to where it was. There's also the issue of 
more uh, COVID-19 cases and that, that that's really ticking up, particularly in certain states across the US and some of those certain states, uh, Arizona, Texas, Florida, California is another one. And this kind of appears to coincide with it being about two weeks from the long weekend celebration of Memorial Day. Of course, I'm sure the uh, the protests uh, don't hurt, uh, don't don't help, I should say. And I know that uh, Dr. Fauci said as much on an interview during the week that he was worried about the impact that the some of the civil unrest and protesting you'll see will have. But generally, when you listen to epidemiologists and doctors, they talk about that it does take a couple weeks, generally two weeks, to actually see that significant data change if there was an impact. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a couple of weeks since that Memorial Day long weekend. So, and it might be another week or so to really show the impact of protests. And more specifically, it was Texas and Florida actually reported their high, highest daily totals of new coronavirus infections during the week. So it's not, it's far from over, far from over, which is weird to think about because it's, it, there's definitely a feeling across Australia that it's over, but yeah, we'll see. The US is in a, a very strange spot because of how hard they were hit from COVID-19 and not just from a health point of view, you know, the, the death rate or the amount of deaths was quite high, but also the economic point of view because and then you sort of throw in all this recent unrest and, and riots and then remember that this country is currently a few months away from a federal election and it couldn't, it seems like the country couldn't be any more partisan than it is right now. And it's just, yeah, it seems like a very strange time to be living in America. So it definitely looks like that is playing into the minds of investors. And I think it's important to also see the context in all this because remember, you know, this crazy recovery that we've seen over the last few weeks has been insanely quick. Uh, it's not fully recovered or anything from from the highs that it was before the pandemic, but it's, you know, it's the market, the ASX has basically been positive for seven weeks straight now, or I think at worst they've been flat, but they've basically been positive the last seven weeks. You know, doing this podcast over the last couple of weeks, you've, you would have heard that you know, the ASX 200 index has been up about, you know, between 4 and 5% for the last few weeks, you know, which is crazy. That, that this kind of stuff doesn't happen normally. And, you know, during the last couple of weeks, I, I read and I listen to a lot of analysts and experts and, and they were kind of left behind sort of scratching their head at these huge rises in equity markets. And, you know, of course, you hear a lot about how that's decoupled from the economic reality and and the and just the earnings reality of some of these companies that are, gonna, that are actually going to be you know hardest hit or at least somewhat hit even if it's not even if they're not like an airline they're still going to see see damage to their business. Yeah, Market Watch had an article yesterday or last night about how well they named it their poster child of the disconnect between reality and investors is the car hire firm Hertz. Now Hertz is in in very bad shape that not that long ago in uh, May, they actually filed for bankruptcy. And as I mean, yeah, as you can imagine, this is not the kind of company that's going to do well during a slowdown like this, especially uh, where people aren't moving and people are barely using their own cars, yet let alone hiring cars. You know, Hertz, how they've actually proved to be wildly popular among speculators, um, which is just gamblers basically on the market because and their share price has... You know, just tanked over the past couple of months, especially 
after declaring that they have filed for bankruptcy. You know, it was low as their share price was as low as 56 cents in May. And this was just after the announcement for bankruptcy. And this hasn't stopped people from piling in to maybe hopefully make a quick buck or two out of it or just betting on the fact that maybe they'll be able to survive the bankruptcy proceedings. And the share price has been so volatile. You can you can look it up and it's it's only further been pushed in the last 24 hours that the bankruptcy court in the US have actually approved Hertz to issue a billion dollars in new stock in order for the company to raise cash. So that's kind of similar. Well, it's not similar in the specific example, but you know, we've talked about capital raisings before where, where companies can issue uh, shares or further shares into, in the company. And that's a way to, for investors to take more shares in the company. Of course, there's a bit of a dilution there, but it's also a way for the company itself to raise cash and they, they can use that to uh, grow their business or in some of the businesses in Australia, like a flight center or a Webjet, they were, they were doing that recently to just ensure they stay alive and shore up the books during the slowdown. But in this case, Hertz, they're, they're more doing the, the, the raise to get cash to basically stay alive, like to really, really stay alive. There's data from Robinhood, which is a popular uh, trading app um, over in the US. It's not, it's not available here. It uh, shows that the, as the price of Hertz, the share price of Hertz has just tanked more and more, the number of actual Robinhood users buying shares in the company has actually gone up and up. So yes, lots of people jumping in for the speculation. I mean, it's somewhat crazy that the bankruptcy court allowed them to issue more shares in the company. Because I know that, of course, the argument is that this is a lifeline for them and this might help them live another day or, or live entirely but it's just as likely that it's going to be a trap for unaware or uneducated people who might find that their shares that they have in hertz uh, could be worth absolutely zero soon and that's the inherent risk with shares right like if your company goes bust you're you're pretty much screwed right like <laughs> uh at least maybe at best you get some sense on the dollar kind of agreement but being an ordinary shareholder in a company, you are at the bottom of the barrel in terms of what the liquidation proceedings are going to focus on. You know, they're more likely to look at paying out uh, debt and all that kind of stuff. And you know, shares are not debt; so you you just own part of the company that's that's collapsed. So you're probably not going to get anything from it. There was some more news regarding the airline sector, which I noted down this week, and. We're still a couple of weeks away from seeing what's going to happen to Virgin specifically. It's been, I know the AFR reported that June 22 is the deadline for final bids for Virgin. So if you are in the market for an airline, maybe <laughs> maybe uh, get your checkbook ready. Jetstar will begin domestic New Zealand flights on July 1, so pretty soon, so in a few weeks' time, and they will start this and they'll be operating at about 60% of their normal capacity over in New Zealand. Qantas is apparently at around 15% of its uh, Sydney to Melbourne capacity. So that route, which is slowly gone up. And that's one, well, I was going to say it's one of their busiest routes, but it's actually one of the busiest routes in the world. A little bit off topic now, but I, if you're interested, if you're a reader, <laughs> it's not a, not a book or anything, but just an article I found this week in The Atlantic and I recommend it to you guys listening. It's You can find it on Google. It's titled The Looming Bank Collapse, which sounds very cynical and negative. But the, this article is about products, uh, specifically they're talking about products that were kind of the same thing that 
that were a problem during the financial crisis. Uh, during the financial crisis, they were CDOs, they called them, or collateralized debt obligations. CDOs became an issue as these were effectively like a giant swimming pool f- filled with what they call subprime mortgages. Subprime meaning low quality. I think in the big short movie, they called it just shit. Just subprime means shit. <laughs> uh, so th- these are risky loans, basically. So they're to not, not strong borrowers or yeah, just, just risky, risky home loans, effectively. And when you saw defaults in the US and defaults on, on home loans started increasing across the US and the housing market started to fall, and basically this the entire you know, Ponzi scheme that was the CDOs just got you know, completely collapsed at the time. And probably most famously, you saw uh, Lehman Brothers, the bank, you know, go completely broke. If you've seen the videos of just employees just walking out of their building with all their stuff and there's you know, just that bank just went went bust effectively and there was there was others as well and this article is not focused on cdos but it's actually focused on clos which stand for collateralized loan obligations and they're basically the same thing but they are made up not of homeowner mortgages so not people buying their homes but of business loans and to make it even better not just any business loan but loans for businesses that have a hard time getting a loan through normal channels or they're unable to raise capital from investors. So shit loans basically is what is what we're is what the right kind of word we're looking for there. And the crazy thing about these CLOs, these collateralized loan obligations, they they can be rated triple A. So when you hear that that triple A is like the highest rating they give out to bonds and uh, I, it's, this is not a great example, but think of it like the 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 marks that you get on your homework or assignments at school, right? So like AAA is the best kind of mark, and then it can go to AA, then A, it can go to triple B, then double B, then B. So basically, if the closer you are to AAA, basically the more higher grade that bond is. So or or what's considered like the safest that it is. So something like an Australian government bond might be AAA, right? Because it's it just seems so unlikely that the government in Australia is going to default on their debts. But the article, uh, talk, this article in the Atlantic talks about how these products get AAA rated when in fact they're actually made up of tons and tons of business loans who individually, none of them are rated AAA. That, you know, at best they might be B. And so you might rightly be saying, well, how the hell would the overall product on the outside be rated AAA when it's just made up of things that, aren't even AAA at all. And there's this term discussed here called default correlation, which is the, the basic definition of which is it's a measure of how likely it is that all the loans, so in all the loans in a CD, CLO will default at the exact same time or, or around the same time. And so these things get these high ratings because they are made up of business loans that come from businesses across different sectors of the market, right? So they're not all just like loans to airlines or something like that. They're they're loans to say a travel sector company or maybe some clothing retail brands or a supermarket and things like this, right? So and then on top of that, they're they're made from they're made to businesses all over the country, right? So you might have a loan to a business in Kentucky and then one in Illinois and one in Arizona. So because they do that, they, they call it diversified and then they can slap on the AAA rating, but none of these actual loans inside are AAA at all. And the insane thing about this is this is the exact style of thinking that went into the ratings on 
CDOs, which was the homeowner ones that were the problem during the housing crisis in the GFC. Here's a really good quote from the article. Quote, CDOs seemed safe before 2008. Back then, the underlying loans were risky too, and everyone knew that some of them would default, but it seemed unlikely that many of them would default at the same time. The loans were spread across the entire country and among many lenders. Real estate markets were thought to be local, not national, and the factors that typically lead people to default in their home loans, such as job loss, divorce, poor health, they don't all move in the same direction at the same time. And then housing prices fell 30% across the board and defaults skyrocketed. So if you've seen the movie The Big Short, which is kind of about what well, it is about the financial crisis, you'll probably remember this great scene where the character based on Steve Eisman went to this uh, Standard & Poor's rating agency, S&P rating, ag- rating agency, and they were there because they were confused as to why the ratings for their for, for subprime mortgage bonds or CDOs, which is what they're talking about, were maintaining their rating, so their very high rating, even though the actual loans inside it were all, well, there was starting to be increased defaults or they were starting to be downgraded themselves. So it's like, how can the actual bond be still the same rating if what's in it is uh, defaulting? Anyway, the, the lady portrayed in the movie from the ratings agency is wearing these giant blackout glasses and it was kind of like a tongue-in-cheek reference to the fact that they were just blind to what the reality was and um or at least didn't want to know what the reality was anyway it's 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 not so much like a point about to be all doom and gloom and the author of the article points out that it's more about just potentially highlighting what these financial products are and what actually could happen to these kind of financial uh, products especially if there was uh, a lot of business defaults going on and you can imagine that There is a lot of that stuff going on, especially amongst some of the hardest hit sectors in the US. Well, not not just the US, right? The world. So you think about those, the retail and travel sectors, especially. Let's talk about my, let's talk about my headline topic for this week, which was not something I usually have a, well, I don't have a ton of experience in from a personal investment perspective. I've, I've always kind of shied away from retail stocks and investing in you know, the likes of uh, Harvey Norman or, or something like a JB Hi-Fi. And that's, I mean, it partly comes from the fact that I'm not sold, at least, not on all of them, but on especially some of those brands in their ability to compete in the long term, especially against, you know, the consumer shift to online shopping. I can't like blanket that across the entire industry, of course, because some of these have made great investments. And somewhat shockingly, which we've seen a lot of news uh, in reporting this week, is some have actually managed to completely shake off COVID-19 in terms of the economic damage from it and actually post really good results for the, for the investors. And there's a couple there that really surprised me. We're going to talk about a few of them. Let's start with JB Hi-Fi. They trade on the ASX. They're, well, they're one of the biggest companies on the Australian Stock Exchange. They trade under JBH. Now, JB Hi-Fi, the company is is a kind of a large umbrella company that includes the JB Hi-Fi that we all know, so the, the crazy bright yellow stores that are packed into Westfields. And they also own the good guys. So, you know, come in and see the good, good, good guys. And uh, their other pillar is JB Hi-Fi New Zealand. So they, they operate over there with their stores. Now on Thursday, JB Hi-Fi actually released a bit of an update to the market and said that their COVID-19 period hasn't been basically as bad to them as 
it has to other parts of the retail sector. Remember, it's probably important in that regard to remember what JB Hi-Fi do and what COVID-19 has forced a lot of us to do so that they've seen strong sales growth in computer and media solutions. So really taking advantage of that work from home culture that's come about and might be even here to stay for a lot of us. And I guess they've also taken advantage, or at least from their side of the fence, they've said that uh, you know there's also the there wasn't much ways to be entertained during this time. So people might be buying new TVs or speaker systems or whatever it is because we're all, we were all at home and, and not really going outside much. Specifically, they saw sales growth in the second half of 2020 of 20%, so huge. And well, even for the good guys, they actually saw 23.5%. The only sour spot was JB Hi-Fi in New Zealand. So their sales did go backwards, but it's important to note that that's because the New Zealand government's response was different to Australia and that they had a complete lockdown. So it's not like they, the stores over there had to shut, basically. They, could, they couldn't just choose to stay open. Let's look at a, a relatively similar brand, Harvey Norman. They trade on the stock exchange under HVN. They, they have similar impact in their overseas operations. So they actually have operations in countries like New Zealand, Malaysia, Ireland, I didn't even know that before I started doing some research here, but most notably they had to shut down those kind of overseas operations, sorry, had to shut down during the the peak of the pandemic completely. So similar to what JB Hi-Fi had to do in New Zealand. But Australia, in Australia, Harvey Norman chose not to shut down. They continued to operate throughout this period. You know, Harvey Norman came to the market on Wednesday and they told everyone that they've seen increased sales growth across the Australian network of stores, which was up 17.5%. And this one surprised me a little bit more than the JB one because Harvey Norman are not, they're not specifically just an electronics retail. They kind of do everything, you know, furniture as well. But then I thought about it and I guess it also goes back to people are using that time to maybe do some small renovations or, or quick upgrades to things in their house, especially if they're spending a little bit more time in it, maybe they noticed things that they didn't before or decided they wanted a new couch. And overall, the Harvey Norman's sales growth was up 7.5%. So that's when you take into account the overseas ones, which presumably were flat or, or went backwards. So it's a very similar story there to JB Hi-Fi. So people still spending money, although I can't see data on specifically what it falls under. But again, I, I tend to imagine it's the whole work from home, renovating your house, all that kind of stuff. Which on the same kind of note, Bunnings have seen a sales growth of 19.2% for the calendar year so far. So Bunnings are owned by West Farmers on the Australian Stock Exchange. I remember once talking to a former colleague when I was working for a stockbroker and they said that West Farmers is as close to being, or it's, it's an example of a stock that's as close to being as recession-proof as possible and he meant that in the sense that they own Coles, they own Bunnings, they own Officeworks. And these are kind of businesses that are likely to be less impacted during a downturn because, you know, if anything, if there's an economic downturn, people won't go to out to restaurants to save money, but they will still go to Coles to, to make food by themselves and, and things like that. Let's switch it up a little bit. Let's look at our online retailer Kogan. If you're not familiar with Kogan, they're almost like a Australian Amazon, although much smaller, not not that kind of size uh, and not that kind of share of the retail market at all. But they are getting bigger and they're growing and they've they've had some success 
especially during this time, well, they're, you know, they're a business that's much more adaptable to this kind of environment. You know, from a just from a fundamental point of view, they, they've smashed the COVID-19 lockdown. They've had gross sales, uh, record gross sales across April and May that were 100% higher than the same time the previous year. And they, their profit gross profit's actually up 130%. You know, there was an article this week in the AFR that noted that Kogan on the Australian Stock Exchange, the, the company is worth more than five times more than, than Maya. I was listening to another podcast as well, uh, The Money Cafe, and Alan Kohler said that he was doing the maths on you know, comparing Kogan to Maya and how that the way that these companies are valued on the stock market is investors are valuing every dollar that Kogan bring in as $2.00 and every dollar that Maya bring in as about 25 cents. I think he said 25 cents. So there you go. It's kind of interesting in that regard, which is why this is happening because you're seeing a change in the guard of retail brands, especially the, you know, the, the, the sort of huge big box department style ones. You know, that's a, that's a business that's very hard to, to be good at. Not that I'm not saying it's impossible. You know, there are examples like, in the US, Walmart has done a really good job at actually remaining relevant and actually expanding their online business and so similar in a similar way to, well, not in a similar way to Walmart, but Costco has done well, even though they take up, you know, huge amounts of space and they're, and they're such big stores. But, you know, something like Maya, that's the kind of company that I do one of those 10-year tests on where I say, do I think that Maya is here in a decade's time? And I, I, can't, I can't see that being the reality. I mean, maybe I'm not saying I'm definitely right, but it's something has to change for them, or, or they have to downsize very significantly. I, I don't know what they have to do. I would hate to be the CEO of Maya, uh, the CEO of Kogan, Ruslan Kogan. He's, I'm sure he wouldn't mind say, me saying, he's quite eccentric. But he basically said that the the most popular thing they saw, at least in the first wave during the lockdown period were laptops and computer peripherals, of course, uh, office chairs. But then they saw this huge wave of uh, people buying fitness equipment and sort of specialty kitchen stuff like bread makers and stuff because people starting to get very comfortable at home and turning it into their gym and, and doing more things in the kitchen. But their share price has just completely you know, outperformed the rest of the market in terms of the bounce. Their shares got down to... Uh, around three dollars seventy, three dollars eighty mark in March, but this week they've they closed the the week out at thirteen dollars fifteen. So they've more than tripled their share price in you know just across less than two months. Effectively, insane. Let's look at one more, one more. I know this. I know the podcast is going for a while. This this episode, but this is one that probably people people might not actually know. This one's actually listed on the ASX, but it's actually the Reject Shop, which you're probably familiar with their stores that are around shopping centers those sort of bargain stores they got down to the mid twos yeah around around two dollars fifty in march and they've closed this week at six dollars sixty six so a very similar story to to kogan in that uh, they've basically doubled or over doubled their share price since those lows now reject shop is very similar to harvey norman in that they made the decision to actually stay open during the pandemic period and they their, their ceo basically came out and said that sales growth has been positive during the period and although that there's been you know huge pullbacks in spending 
they seem to be faring okay and that's because they're selling a lot of basic needs stuff like you know bathroom products toiletry products you know cleaning equipment all that kind of stuff so i think the point of me highlighting this stuff is there's actually a few examples of how it's you know not all bad out there and i don't want to completely ignore the many parts of the retail industry that are suffering and we've focused a lot on that on this podcast over the past several weeks you know especially the the damage that's occurred to travel and food and and all that kind of stuff but this is the thing with it right so spending during a period of downturn whilst it can pull back it can also be reallocated so consumers can decide to actually spend their money in other ways or or in other parts of the economy so what i mean by that is you know during uncertain times people will sort of tighten the belt a little bit and especially if they're not feeling secure about maybe their job or you know repaying their mortgage or something like that and you can see that in certain data like the westpac do like a consumer confidence survey and they have an index and it it fell to 29 year lows in april because that's when everyone was you know had panic stations on there's also a just one of the comsec economic reports this week notes that a survey among consumers when it asks them what do you think the best thing to do with your savings right now the answer of spending is at its lowest in five and a half years so that's what that's what's going through the mind of people when they're they're being surveyed on these things and none of that's surprising right this is not something that you're going to be shocked at right people will pull back when times are unclear but they're also going to reallocate even if it's just some of the spending it doesn't have to be all of it but they're going to re uh, just going to prioritize their spending in other parts of the market and that's why you've seen well especially with all the the crazy panic buying you've seen the likes of Woolworths and Coles actually do incredibly well during that period and and to the point where they've had to hire you know thousands of staff to actually keep up with it yeah so it's that some of this was really surprising to me at least in some of the numbers specifically with some massive overall sales growth for you know companies like JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman during a period like we've been and they've proven that they can be very strong and very resilient even even during a downturn that's it this week this is, might be my longest podcast episode ever hope you found it interesting hope i didn't ramble i don't care if i rambled but i hope you found it interesting if you do have a question for the show shoot it through at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com have a great rest of your weekend of course my name is dion and thank you very much for tuning in cheers <laughs>